Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, August 25th, 2017, with a review of the book business news this week and a look ahead for stories to follow in coming days. We turn every Friday to Andrew Albany's Publishers Weekly Senior Writer. He joins me now from New York, and welcome back to Beyond the Book, Andrew. Greetings, Chris. Well, greetings indeed. And in Monday's issue, we can look forward to the 2017 rundown of the world's largest publishers. Always uh, a feature that people enjoy. It's good to know who's up and who's down. So in broad strokes, uh, what are we going to find out? Yeah, so it is one of our one of PW's most popular features of the year, uh, and as you say, Monday's issue will feature the the 2017 global rankings. I think which measures 2016 actually, and as they say, some things never change, and as they have for some time now, Pearson will retain its top spot, even with major changes impacting the educational publishing market, uh, particularly in the American uh, education marketplace, which uh, has forced a number of companies on the list this year uh, to restructure including Pearson. So it's kind of amazing that Pearson has held on to that top spot uh, and is really sort of a testament to their size because they actually underwent a company-wide restructuring in 2016 that eliminated about 4,000 employees. As to who is up and down in the rankings this year, I'm going to just direct listeners to the chart, which they can see on Monday and on Friday on the PW website. But one notable from this year's list, only two companies among the top 10 largest publishers had outright sales increases in 2016. That's Spain's Grupo Planeta, which had a small increase in sales, and Springer Nature, which posted a pretty nice 7% increase in sales. But despite the fairly weak performances of the top 10 publishers, their share of all revenue from publishers rose two points to 56% up from 54. Uh, you know, and since we started uh, ranking the world's biggest publishers, the largest 10 companies have consistently accounted for about 53 to 58% of the revenue of all publishers uh, who have been featured in the ranking. All right, Andrew. So we have listeners across the globe. Can you give us a sense of whether there's uh, much change uh, at the global level by region? For example, how did Americans do and are there any other publishers uh, by region that may have posted a change from the recent years and who doesn't get counted? Yes. Yeah, so overall, uh, there were six American companies who were among the world's largest 50 publishers, and they include um, Wiley, which was the ninth largest publisher. Scholastic and HarperCollins, I think, came in at 11 and 12, respectively. And Simon & Schuster is on the list with revenue of about almost $767 million, I think, last year. They clocked in at number 23 on the list. Uh, as, as for other changes, I'd note that two Brazilian publishers have actually returned to the ranking in 2016 after dropping off. Uh, for 2015 due largely to sort of the turmoil in the country there, including the plunge in value of Brazil's currency. Um, Somos was ranked, I think, 32nd largest publisher in the world. And that's, you know, in part, I think, to its acquisition of the book division of Sariva uh, and an improvement in exchange rates. A couple of acquisitions helped to boost the Russians' fortunes. Uh, Exmo's uh, revenue in 2016 put the Russian publisher at 38th in the global ranking. And yeah, there 
there are some companies that are not counted here anymore. I should point out that the ranking excludes Chinese publishers this year. You know, we started including Chinese publishers in 2014 when publishing companies in China started to provide verifiable economic data. But in 2016, for last year, which would affect this year's rankings, China's government changed their data to start including, starting to include social as well as economic benefits that the publishers ranked, which we really have not been able to make heads or tails of that. But this ranking, we do know, is purely economic. So without strictly verifiable economic data, uh, we had no choice but to exclude Chinese publishers from this year's ranking. Okay, then. So from the big firms to the small firms, or the indies, as they would prefer to be called, also in Monday's issue, PW looks ahead to some of the big indie titles uh, for fall 2017. Give us a sense of what the smaller firms are up to. Yeah, so you know, we talk a lot in the show about how the the major publishing industry has become sort of a hits driven business, uh, and we've also noted on the show how indie publishers there's sort of this golden age of indie publishing thanks to social media and marketing opportunities and a better supply chain, a more efficient supply chain, I should say. Well, today's indie publishers are in my opinion, certainly publishing some of the boldest and most exciting stuff out there. And they're taking a big risk on new voices. So if you need more proof of that, uh, you can check out Monday's issue where we have um, our annual look at the best indie books for fall. Um, we drew from a final pool of over 200 contenders this year, and they include works in translation, uh, as well as new ways of thinking about science and history and economics and memoirs, really great stuff. And I'm not going to run down the titles here, but I'll say uh, if you're looking for something great to read this fall, you do well to check out the list uh, in Monday's issue of the Fall Indie Highlights. Truly great stuff on there. When we return, PW's Andrew Albanese has analysis of a copyright law confrontation that asks the digital question, when is a sale not a sale? I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. On Friday, August 25th, 2017, I'm joined from New York by Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer with the review of the Book World News for the week. And when we spoke last week, Andrew, you were looking forward to sitting in at a hearing before a Manhattan appeals court in a case that could open the door to reselling digital content. Capital Records versus Redigi involves a company that wants to see the doctrine of first sale extended into the digital realm. That would allow you to resell your digital files just as you or I used to resell old records or old books. So how did the hearing go and what do you predict uh, uh, will come out of it and, and did it live up to expectations? Yeah, you know, you can read my report as promised on the PW website. And I would say, yeah, the hearing pretty much 
went as I predicted and as I expected last week. Um, most notably, most prominently, I should say, uh, Redigi attorneys did in fact argue that Judge Richard Sullivan overstepped when he wrote in his summary judgment from March of 2013 that the first sale doctrine is limited to material items like physical records or print books. Uh, the law simply doesn't say that anywhere, and I'd actually be quite surprised at this point if the appeals court lets that stand. You know, at one point, Judge Rosemary Pooler on the appeals panel put the question directly to the parties. Uh, is Redigi like a used record store, she asked. And of course, Digi replied, yes, we are. Uh, and then she put the question to Capitol Records attorneys, and she said, why is Redigi not like a used record store? And this is where the crux of the case lies, because it's not possible to transfer a digital work without making a reproduction, Capitol attorney Richard Mandel told uh, Pooler. And then he went on to insist that Judge Richard Sullivan got it exactly right in his ruling, because once you embody a copyrighted work in a new advice, you've reproduced it. In other words, if my phone has a file and then I transfer it and it appears over there on your phone, well, a material reproduction has clearly taken place and that circumvents copyright law. And that seems kind of simple, right? Of course, it's not. And then for probably the better part of a half an hour, even though the entire argument was supposed to be about a half hour, less than a half hour, 30 minutes was at least was spent by Redigi attorney Robert Welsh trying to explain why Judge Sullivan got it wrong. And as I predicted last week, too, there was a lot of confused expressions on the panel and some really puzzling questions. But eventually, over the course of the hearing, uh, in my opinion, I think the panel got it. And I think they finally understood Redigi's argument here. Okay, so let's see how confused you can make us. Well, I don't count. That's too easy. <laughs> anyway, uh, reduce Redigi's argument to the essential, if you can, and tell us what it is you think the judges got. Okay, here goes. So... In his argument, Redigi attorney Robert Welsh told the judges to think of an iTunes file as a completed jigsaw puzzle. What Redigi's service does is it breaks apart the puzzle on the seller's device, that's the original iTunes file, and it moves it piece by piece and bit for bit the exact same file from the seller's device to the buyer's device where the puzzle is then reassembled. At no point in the process does Redigi create a file or copy a file and never does it even temporarily hold a new file in its cloud service. It only holds a piece at a time of the original file. So given that we're not talking about a copy but the original file, the case turns, or so Redigi lawyers want to believe, on a simple question. What is a material object? In his ruling, Judge Sullivan held that the phones mattered here, that one phone had a file and now another phone had a file. So, you know, those are two different material objects and clearly there was a reproduction. But though you can't touch it and though it exists in no tangible form, the iTunes code that holds the sound recording is actually the material object that counts here. Uh, Welsh stressed to the court over and over that that file, that that code is like the vinyl or the CD that holds the sound recording in the analog world. And that is the only material object we're talking about here, he explained. Not whose device it resides on, uh, as Sullivan concluded. Uh, that device, well stressed, is just the record player. It's not the phono record. So moving, not copying a file from my phone to yours, is the exact same thing as playing my vinyl record on your record player. Uh, or so or did you would like you to believe. It's the same record. It's not a copy. The only difference is, rather than being fixed in vinyl, the sound is actually fixed in code. 
there. How'd I do? <laughs> well, uh, up to a point, I'm with you. But the crucial assertion is that this transaction, uh, uh, the sale or resale of an original file is, is just that. It's the original so- file sold to someone else. But I'm sorry, who's to say you didn't keep a copy for yourself? That's a great point. And that was a question that the judges asked. And Radigi had a pretty good response to that. So what? Not my problem, they said. And in a sense, they're right. Because no used record store has ever asked you whether you ripped that CD to your hard drive and made copies for your friends before you sold it to them. Uh, or whether you Xeroxed a book maybe in your collection. Now, from a legal perspective, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that's correct. The difference is, in the digital realm, the quality of the copy that you make is indiscernible from the original. Now, whether that's going to matter from a legal perspective, I don't know, uh, whether that's something that Congress is going to have to go in and shore up, perhaps, uh, but I know it matters to the market for sure. Okay, so now we've had the appeals hearing. Um, Any change as to how you expect things to go in the future? Well, I have to say, I thought Redigi overall had a really good day in court, and I think they probably have a decent shot at having, if not the entire case, at least parts of the case remanded. Uh, and a couple of things I should point out, too, whatever the decision here, it's going to be an authoritative decision because two of the judges on the panel, which is randomly assigned, are copyright fair use heavyweights. Uh, there was Pierre Laval, who's probably considered the nation's most distinguished fair use jurist uh, and author most recently is the, in the, of the appeals court decision in Authors Guild versus Google, and John O. Newman, who penned the decision in the landmark 1994 copyright case, uh, which we know as Texaco, which is American Geophysical Union versus Texaco. Uh, And then, of course, there was Rosemary Pooler as well, who I mentioned as the third judge on the panel. Um, It's always hard to read the tea leaves here for moral arguments, but my gut tells me uh, I think Redigi had a pretty good day in court. Well, you have expressed a pretty reasonable skepticism about this whole idea of how first sale could work in the digital realm. A lot of others uh, also ask the same kind of question. So even in the courts, or if the courts hold that digital files can be resold like analog objects, do you think we will, we will ever see a market for used ebook editions? And would that be as harmful as, for example, AAP argued in its brief? I think regardless of how this case is decided, that we are a long way from seeing a a resale market for digital works, if we ever do. Uh, And that's because, as I understand it, used copies, it's an analog concept. And because digital files are, for the most part, licensed and not sold, right? So it's not hard to write out for sale using a license, which most ebook publishers already do. So uh, it's hard for me to see this happening. Now, To me, what a ruling for Redigi could do here is just simply emphasize the efficiency of new models, models that are not based on selling digital copies. For example, streaming, which publishers are not keen on. They don't feel their product particularly works well for streaming services, but the music business is actually seeing great growth from from streaming. Uh, and remember, too, that Apple and Amazon have applied for, and in some cases been granted, patents to establish a digital resale market. So I think one of the nightmare scenarios here has for publishers has to be Amazon insisting that publishers, or at least negotiating for publishers, to allow Kindle users to resell their ebooks to other Kindle users on the Amazon platform as part of their terms of sale. Um, and that would be, you know, not po- probably be bolstered necessarily if the Redigi ruling comes down in favor of, of a vibrant for sale market. But I think the biggest issue that lingers from this case for me uh, really goes to Congress. Um, I think Congress at some point is going to have to address 
how comfortable really are we moving, at least in some sectors, away from a, a formerly copyright-governed world that was based on ownership of things to a world of license-based streaming access to stuff. You know, where are the fault lines there? What's the impact on speech? What's the impact on the free flow of ideas? So whatever the court decides in the Redigi case, uh, I think there are still much bigger questions to be addressed. Well, here at the end of summer, Andrew, Congress is enjoying its August recess, and we will observe the same, or at least we will next week when the Friday edition of Beyond the Book takes a break. So enjoy the summer that's left to you, Andrew Albanese, and I look forward to speaking with you in September. Thanks for joining me today on Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. On the next Beyond the Book, wherever lawmakers attempt so-called copyright reform, the work is arduous and time-consuming. In the European Union, stakeholders speak two dozen official languages and hail from 28 nations, making the potential for complications as many as the layers in a Napoleon pastry. In France, where respect for intellectual property rights has roots in the Renaissance, the collective management organization that represents textile authors and publishers is seeking a legal balance for content creators and the public interest, as Sandra Chastanet of CFC in Paris explains. The goal is to have a very well-functioning copyright market in the digital era. And this is what we are looking for, what rights holders are looking for. But um, there is different ways to achieve it. And our view, uh, this directive focus on digital uses because it is true that since the last directive uses have evolved we know that uh, nearly 60 percent of uh, teachers are using uh, digital material and they are providing material to the pupils and students in a digital way and the way people access information as well has changed uh, now they access news via platforms and um, all is digital, so they read it on the mobile and everything. So we needed it. Of course, uh, we we want to create opportunities for uh, creators, publishers, but also for users, for the industry, for startups. A copyright update for Europe. Next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries RightsDirect and Ixis drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.